Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Every species that we know of requires water in order to survive. Water is everywhere on the planet Earth. 75% of our surface area is covered by water. On top of this, humans use water for a number of different things, including waste disposal, bathing, in recreation, and for many of our industrial processes. But water can be dangerous. For land-based species that require respiration like humans, being submerged under water can result in respiratory impairment, hypoxia, and death. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about drowning, also known as submergent and injury. This is a big problem. The leading cause of death in children between 1 and 4 years of age is in fact drowning. Worldwide, Approximately 400,000 people die every year from drowning. The most important thing is that most all drownings are in fact preventable. And by improving education and making more safe environments with more supervision, we can stop children and adults from losing their life or having long-term morbidity as a result of drowning. Drowning is defined as respiratory impairment caused by submersion in a liquid media. This can be any liquid. It's most commonly water, but it could be other liquid solvents. It could be waste products. It could be any number of things. In general, a drowning case has three outcomes. You can have a drowning resulting in death, a drowning resulting in survival without long-term morbidity, and a drowning that results in survival with long-term term morbidity. Historically, there have been a lot of different definitions of drowning. You've probably heard things like wet drowning, dry drowning, near drowning. All of that stuff added no value to clinical care or prevention, and it created a lot of confusion. And so those terms are no longer used in the nomenclature for drowning. Pew! All right, let's talk about the pathophysiology of drowning. Generally, it starts with a struggle. Somebody is struggling to keep their head and body above water. Now, this isn't always the case. Sometimes people are merely unconscious. You can imagine an adult that's had too much alcohol could pass out in a puddle and drown. There would be no struggle, but yet their face would still be submerged in in liquid and prevent them from being able to breathe. Eventually, as a person is unable to breathe, 
their CO2 levels in their body will rise. This CO2 will eventually trigger a breath. And while people can override that breath for a while, as they tire or as they become unconscious, they will eventually take a breath and take in water or another liquid. That water is then aspirated into the lungs. Upon aspiration, sometimes people will develop a laryngospasm. So the vocal cords will spasm and shut. This is actually helpful and can prevent additional aspiration of liquid into the lungs. Because at the end of the day, if you aspirate a large volume of liquid in your lungs, it's going to make resuscitation a lot more difficult than if you uh, have a small volume of liquid. Eventually, if the person is not rescued or not able to get above water, they're going to start becoming more and more hypoxic. This hypoxia is going to hurt multiple different organs and tissues, and in fact, time is really tissue in this scenario. The longer time it takes to get a person resuscitated and breathing again, the more likely they are to be to have neurologic or other organ-based system issues. If a person becomes increasingly hypoxic and is not rescued and enough time passes, they will eventually die. And that is how a drowning incident kills somebody. Alright, let's discuss a little bit of the epidemiology around drowning. At least 500,000 people die from drowning every year worldwide. This is disproportionately happening in low- and middle-income countries, and it's estimated that greater than 90% of drownings occur in these countries. In the United States, around four to 5,000 people die every year from drowning. The most vulnerable population are, in fact, children. And in children between one and four years of age, drowning is a leading or perhaps the leading cause of death worldwide. On top of the deaths, there are probably hundreds of thousands of non-fatal drownings in the United States and millions of drownings worldwide every year. In younger people, drownings tend to occur in things like pools, hot tubs, bathtubs, even toilets and buckets. You can imagine that big head in a child age 1 to 4 just falling forward into a toilet or a bucket them getting stuck and not being able to get out. In older, or sorry, as, as people age in, in, in adolescence and older adults, drownings tend to occur much more commonly in natural bodies of water, lakes, rivers, streams, etc. In older individuals, like people over 65 that have other health conditions, and those people with seizures, drownings are particularly common in bathtubs. You can imagine if somebody seized, they could submerge their head underwater, and because of how long that seizure takes and then that postictal period, they could easily drown. For an older individual with heart disease or, or, or cardiovascular disease, they could have a heart attack or a stroke in the bathtub, slip underwater, and they themselves could drown as well. So this is a problem that primarily is affecting children, but also affects younger adults, older adults, and really all of us. And any problem that's a problem for children is a problem for all of us people. So then what are the risk factors for drowning? 
Well, being a child less than 14 euros of age is a, is a very large risk factor, and especially those children 1 to 4 years of age. Being a man is a risk factor for drowning. In fact, you are three times more likely to drown if you are a man than a woman. And that goes for a lot of outdoor recreation and um, you know safety type stuff. Men are more likely to be struck by lightning. They're more likely to die in mountaineering incidents and, and problems. Men just do stupid stuff and think they can do more than, than they're able to and so would be more likely to try and, say, do a swimming activity that they're just not in the physical shape to be doing. Low income is a risk factor for drowning. I think that's really an education issue. If people have lower income, they're less likely to have uh, swimming lessons and they're probably less likely to have good uh, knowledge regarding safety precautions in the house. Being an African-American in the United States is a risk factor for drowning. I don't think this has anything to do with the actual race of the people. I think it's more, again, of an education issue. This is a population that probably doesn't get access to swimming lessons and for that reason is disproportionately affected. Having seizures, as we said, is uh, a big risk factor. And in fact, people dying in their bathtubs after a seizure is a leading cause of death in people with epilepsy. Being elderly with chronic medical conditions is a risk factor for drowning. Not being able to swim is, of course, a risk factor drowning. And alcohol and other substance use is an enormous risk factor for drowning. In fact, greater than 50% of adult drownings actually involve alcohol. So that is something really important to think about. I know many of us, if we're recreating in water, if we're on a boat, we're on a beach, we're so often enjoying some alcoholic beverages. But it's so important to keep in mind that being inebriated around water is a risk factor and a danger. And anytime you're swimming or in open water, you want to have your mental faculties such that you can take care of yourself. With those risk factors in mind, let's talk about how we can potentially prevent people from drowning. And the first way is by teaching them how to swim. Get children into swimming lessons. Learning how to swim will help prevent drownings. Along with that is being honest with oneself about swimming abilities. If someone is fatigued, if their physical fitness is not good, swimming in open water can be dangerous. If you think, oh, I'm going to swim out 300 yards, and then you get out there and you're exhausted, getting back is going to be very dangerous and difficult. So be honest with yourself about your abilities. A great way to prevent drownings in young kids is putting up barriers around pools, hot tubs, ponds, etc. You really want to, to do that. You don't want kids being able to just walk over to a pool and jump in. That needs to be fenced off. Along with that is baby-proofing really the entire house. Like we talked about, kids can drown in toilets and buckets. And so you don't want to have you know buckets of water just lying around where kids could potentially get stuck in them or caught in them. And you want to be careful even with things like toilets. You want to try to avoid substances while you're recreating in water and certainly avoid getting so intoxicated that you're out of your mind, essentially, because that is a very dangerous situation and a risk factor for drowning. Using proper supervision and proper flotation devices is also very helpful. Lifeguards have definitely been shown to prevent drownings and prevent long-term morbidity following drownings. And so keeping an eye on kids, having lifeguards at swimming areas, and using proper flotation devices are, is really important. 
Along with that, the buddy system should never really be understated. Having two kids that are keeping an eye on each other is going to be a long way in preventing drowning, and so always keep that in mind. Another way to prevent is to be very careful about crossing high rivers. Um, rivers can be very dangerous. People often misjudge the depth and the speed of water. I know I have uh, basically tripoded on river crossings on multiple occasions, and that really is a dangerous situation and one you need to be careful about. So that kind of goes along with being honest with yourself and, and kind of avoiding those risks. And then finally, men need to recreate with women. Women are very smart. They tend to tell us openly when things we're doing are stupid. And we tend to respond to them and be more mature when we're with them. So <laughs> maybe think about bringing some women along just to keep, uh, keep the men in order. As far as life vests go, there's different types of life vests. Um, generally, we, we divide them into type 1 through 5. Types 1 and 2 tend to be more open water life jackets. Uh, type 1 is particularly good for like open ocean life jackets. Both of these types of life jackets will, will right somebody, so they'll turn them onto their back to keep their head above water. And that can be really important if you're going to be stranded in water for a long time. Type 3 life jackets are what you commonly see on boats, on lakes, and what people use when they water ski. Uh, they work, but they do tend to turn people onto their backs, especially if they're unconscious or don't have voluntary movement. So that can be kind of dangerous. And a type 4 PFD is actually a throw PFD. And we'll talk about how those are used as, as part of the mnemonic reach, throw, row, go. But that can be a really good thing to have around, especially near open bottles of, bodies of water where people are swimming, to prevent someone from actually having to get into the water to get somebody out. There's other type of life jackets, um, you know, obviously people are familiar with the ones we put on kids' arms and stuff, but those are just four of the main types of life jackets that we commonly use and see. Alright, let's talk a little bit about rescue. How do we safely access and rescue people that are drowning? And this is particularly important in, in open bodies of water. The mnemonic that I've been taught for years it's extremely logical and it works and everybody should know it is the idea of reach, throw, row, go. In rescuing a drowning victim, you are putting yourself at danger as a rescuer. One, it's hard to swim at baseline. Two, it's hard to tow somebody on top of swimming at baseline. Three, if that person is agitated or thrashing around or if the water is uh, dangerous or there's current or there's temperature issues, getting in that water is going to be potentially very dangerous. And anybody interested in actually getting in the water themselves to rescue someone should be properly trained in water rescue. And this gets even into more caveats, like you have open open ocean rescues, which can be dangerous, under ice rescues that can be very dangerous, swift water rescue, which of course can be very dangerous. And so people that are getting in the water to pull people out really need to be trained. They need to know what they're doing, and a discussion about that more is beyond the scope of this talk. But really thinking about trying to reach for somebody, so either with your hand or with a long stick or pole, trying to throw a rope or a type 4 
PFD to somebody is probably the next thing to try for. And then finally, rowing out to somebody in a boat or, or some other type of vessel so that you're not actually in the water is, is a final good th strategy. But, but do it in that order. You're going to reach, throw, row, and then finally, if you're trained and, 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 and are confident that you can safely rescue somebody, you can go. But you've got to be very careful. You don't want to make a one-victim scenario into a two-victim scenario. Resuscitation following drowning is extremely important, and there are some people trained in starting in-water resuscitations, but in general that's going to be hard and messy, and for normal people you're just going to want to get them out of the water. Follow your CPR algorithm in that you're going to check for breathing and a pulse for 10 seconds. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Pew! If you don't hear any of that, you need to start the resuscitation. And it's very important in a drowning that you start with two rescue breaths. So you're going to want to check the mouth, make sure there's no foreign bodies or anything obstructing it. You're going to want to get a good mask on the patient. You're going to want to deliver two rescue breaths, each creating good chest rise. After that, you're going to start CPR. And for adults, it's going to be a 30 to 2 compression to breath ratio. And for kids, it's going to be a 15 to 2 uh, compression to breath ratio. And keep in mind that for a lot of, uh, you know, cardiac arrest um, scenarios, like where you see a person collapse in a park or at work, that's going to be a primary cardiac problem. And, f and for those instances, a lot of people are recommending compression-only CPR. But because drowning is such a respiratory-specific complaint, you really need to start with those rescue breaths, and you need to use rescue breaths throughout CPR. That's something that you shouldn't forget, because a, a lot of people are pushing these days for compression-only CPR, but I think drowning kind of breaks that algorithm. If you have oxygen, you're going to want to put them on 100% oxygen during the resuscitation. And then keep in mind that, that these people are going to be cold. If water is below about 90 degrees, people lose, lose heat in it. And most water we're in, unless it's a hot tub, is going to be less than 90, you know, 91, 92 degrees. And so people are going to be cold. So get that wet clothing off, dry them, and get them on some warm clothes. If you have... Back to the CPR. If you have an AED, you're gonna want to obviously put that in place because if they do, or if they are in like, you know, um, V-fib or something, you could potentially shock them out of it. Just like with avalanche, time to rescue is paramount, and time is really tissue. There's been cases of kids that have drowned, and especially in cold water, have been underwater for up to 66 minutes minutes and then been resuscitated and while a lot of those kids look normal initially a lot of them do tend to have neurologic sequelae in the long term but there are some amazing situations in younger people of being rescued a long time after being submerged in water 
in general, if someone's been submerged for at least 30 minutes in warmer water, so say greater than 6 degrees Celsius water, it's probably reasonable to stop uh, looking for the patient emergently after about 30 minutes and certainly after an hour. Uh, for water less than 6 degrees Celsius, people have a greater chance of surviving uh, neurologically intact. So typically we stretch that out to greater than 90 minutes before um, kind of the search and rescue is uh, called off, at least from a urgent, we could potentially resuscitate this patient standpoint. It becomes more of a looking for a body at that point. Let's talk a little bit about C-spine precautions. Now, protecting the spine and a person's body is all very important and good. Certainly, you want to always keep people in anatomically correct positions and transport them in as comfortable of a position as possible. But unfortunately, our use of rigid fixation of people's C-spine and backs have actually been at the detriment of our patients. And what I mean is that putting someone on a rigid backboard has been shown to lead to muscle spasms and other uh, you know, ulcers and sores and other problems. And putting somebody in a C-collar can certainly compromise one's ability to manage airway. And in fact, many airways have been compromised as a result of too aggressive C-spine precautions. And so I think as pre-hospital medicine evolves, we're moving away from these rigid, rigidly uh, fixating patients and moving more towards putting them in comfortably and correct anatomical positions. But in general, anyone who has a high mechanism of injury, so like if they dived into shallow water, if they fell off of a boat going 60 miles an hour, you're going to want to think about taking pretty good C-spine precautions. If they have obvious signs of head trauma or other injuries that, that demonstrate high-impact trauma, you're going to want to take C-spine precautions. But in your run-of-the-mill drowning patient, you're probably not going to need to worry about C-spine precautions in the absence of a mechanism or clinical signs of any C-spine injury. And I never want to see anyone compromise airway in order to protect the C-spine regardless of concerns. Airway always comes first. From a research standpoint, I really can't find cases of people who neurologically deteriorated as a result of improper transport. And so I think these are more theoretical concerns that have never actually been borne out by research. And so C-spine cannot take precedence over airway management. For instance, if somebody is being resuscitated and they all of a sudden start vomiting, turn them on their side right away so they don't aspirate more vomit. Do not worry about the C-spine in that case. Like the bigger issue is compromising their airway once again. Those are kind of my thoughts. I think that'll be kind of controversial, but I think time will be on my side in the, the whole C-spine debate. All right, so let's get into clinical management following resuscitation. If a person drowns and they are completely asymptomatic other than a slight cough, and you have no concerns about them from a cardiopulmonary standpoint, that patient can be safely discharged from the emergency department or from another clinical setting within six hours. I've seen different sources go anywhere from four to eight hours, but six hours seems like a pretty reasonable observation period. 
Now, if that patient has any signs of respiratory compromise, things like crackles on their lungs or any, any unusual lung sounds, things like accessory muscles uh, for breathing, tachypnea, um, tachycardia, or anything that shows that this patient may have some degree of respiratory compromise, they should be observed until those signs and symptoms resolve. For patients that actually have more serious respiratory compromise, you oftentimes may need to use um, some sort of assist device. And this might be something like a BiPAP machine, a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation machine. This is really nice in that it's going to help push some of that pulmonary edema caused by that aspiration out of the lungs. Remember though, with a BiPAP machine, you've got to be very careful because if that person still has liquid in their stomach and they vomit, they could potentially aspirate more stuff. So if that person is not protecting their airway well, um, or if you're worried about further aspiration, that's probably somebody who should be intubated. And I will say that anyone that you're using positive pressure ventilation on for a drowning or intubating for a drowning needs to have an NG2 priced and needs to have their stomach drained because while people were taking in fluid into their lungs, they likely were taking it into their stomach too, and you don't want to have a ticking time bomb sitting there waiting for you. If somebody does have to be ventilated, you're going to want to go with the ARDSNET protocol in most all situations. A low tidal volume, lung protective respiratory strategy, um, and uh, obviously I think the uh, as little sedation as possible and as little time on the vents as possible is, is always a good thing. Uh, but those are kind of the, the quick and dirty of the respiratory management for drowning. As far as antibiotics go, you really don't need to give any prophylactic antibiotics as a result of the aspiration, except perhaps in the case of, of drowning in a, in a potentially dirty liquid, like say if someone drowned in sewage or human feces or something like that, that might be an indication to give uh, presumptive antibiotics. There's really no role, uh, or at least a well-studied role, for steroids in drowning victims, at least from the presumptive standpoint. I will say that if a person had respiratory compromise and any signs of, of wheezing, lung tightness, or anything like that, I would definitely putting, be putting steroids on board. And if they're critically ill as a result of that, you may think about steroids as well for that indication. I use a lot of steroids in my hospital practice. They help people feel a lot better. And so drowning alone is not an indication for steroids, but if there's other reasons, I would go ahead and add steroids on board as well. As far as cooling a patient that has drowned and remains unconscious, there's really no good evidence to support that practice at this time. And so I really can't recommend for or against doing that in the same manner you might do for a cardiac arrest victim that remains unconscious, uh, cooling them to like 32 to 34. Not sure for drowning in that scenario. Really, really the hallmark of drowning care though is, is support. You're really just trying to support this person drive the fluid out of their lungs with positive pressure, and keep them alive as their body slowly recovers. Um, in general, as far as like post-resuscitation goes, because of the hypoxic injury, uh, which often involves the brain, things like speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and kind of continued support is often going to be necessary for these patients in the post-hospital or, or even peri-hospital and post-hospital setting. I want to circle back around to prevention in the sense that any of your patients with seizures or epilepsy, 
any of your patients who have had cardiac arrests or strokes, especially those elderly patients, should be counseled about the risks of drowning in the bathtub at home. Uh, people should know about those risks and people need to have proper supervision if they're, say, taking a bath and their seizures aren't under control and things like that. The final subject I want to talk about is something called free diving blackouts. Free divers are people that uh, dive and swim underwater without any air tanks or any supplemental oxygen. And basically there are two reasons why these people can black out. And of course, if you black out underwater, there's a good chance you could drown and die. The first reason is when people are at the surface getting ready to drive getting ready to dive you often see them taking a bunch of rapid breaths they go <laughs> and they're trying to get themselves ready for that dive the problem is that when you take those rapid breaths you don't actually increase the oxygen in your body uh, to any significant degree but what you do do is you blow off co2 and co2 is the primary trigger of respiration and so what happens is someone blows off all their CO2, they go on their dive, while they're underwater their CO2 is low and it's climbing, but yet it's not getting high enough to tell them, hey, you've got to get back up to the surface or you might pass out. And what happens is their oxygen is dropping low but not triggering a breath, and so they actually end up more hypoxic than they think they are and they can black out as a result of that. The next reason that people have free diving blackouts is a result of the increased pressure as you go down to depths underwater. For every 10 meters or 33 feet that someone dives down, the pressure increases by one atmosphere. So at, sur at sea level, you're, everyone is, is for the most part under about one atmosphere of pressure. And for every 10 meters down they go, they get an additional atmosphere of pressure. So if you're a free diver and you're 10 meters below the water, you are under two atmospheres of pressure. What happens is, is in the lungs, those two atmospheres put pressure on that oxygen. So it feels like there's a lot of oxygen in the lungs. Now, when that same diver goes to surface, and they swim up toward the surface of the water, the pressure starts to drop. And so the amount of pressure and, and usable oxygen in the lungs becomes less. And so what can happen is as people near the surface, usually just a few feet away, they can black out. Those are two scary situations uh, because you're free diving underwater and they, they demonstrate some interesting physiology and I just wanted to bring them up. Okay, that is a lot about drowning. I think some of the most important take-home points are that drowning is a big problem worldwide, especially in developing countries. Children are at particularly high risk, and especially toddlers. Children one to four years old. Baby-proof your house, people, and encircle any hot tubs, pools, and, th and, and bodies of water in fences. That stuff is so important and it saves lives. The other group at high risk are people recreating in open water usually using alcohol and these are people that are usually making um, bad decisions usually uh, using too much substances and um, 
just being safe out there with your friends, using a buddy system, having people around to keep an eye on you if you're recreating in that way is so, so important. The next group we talked about were people that have seizures and other um, health issues like like uh, history of cardiac arrest and strokes. Those people can actually die in bathtubs. As far as resuscitation goes in a drowning victim, don't forget that rescue breaths are what you should start with. And two rescue breaths with good chest rise followed by high quality CPR is going to take you a long way. To swing back around, rescuing victims by actually going in the water is dangerous. You should try to avoid that at all costs unless you're adequately trained. And remember the mnemonic, reach, throw, row, go. When people do present to the hospital, if they're totally asymptomatic, usually we recommend watching them for about six hours before sending them home. But if they have any any signs of respiratory compromise, it's recommended to, to watch them until those resolve or go away completely. And the reason for that observation period is there have been recorded cases of people deteriorating from a pulmonary standpoint even hours after their initial drowning incident. So do keep an eye on those people because in rare cases things can get worse before they get all the way better. If you do need to put somebody on BiPAP or intubate somebody, make sure you drain their stomach and use lung protective strategies to ventilate them. There's a lot to be said about organ-specific injury in drowning. We talked about the hypoxic brain injury. We talked a little bit about the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, and other organ systems can also have specific issues. We really didn't get into that, and honestly, it's not super interesting because most are just the direct effects of hypoxia, but there's certainly more to be said about that, and if you want to, you can always take a deeper dive into those organ-specific injuries and issues. There is so much more to say about drowning. There's so much more to say about how to stay safe in the water if you are being, if you're worried about drowning and rescue and all that stuff. I didn't get into the, any of the nitty-gritty details around that. Uh, at some point, we'll probably circle back around and talk about drowning-related topics more because there's so many other topics that build off of that. But I just wanted to get some of the most important basic information regarding drowning, also known as submergent in- injury. Sub- submersion injury. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.